This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Strangers and Aliens, episode 150, Reflections on Easter. Welcome to the Strangers and Aliens podcast. Strangers. <laughs> to boldly say what needs to be said. Would you be a stranger or an alien? Or would you be a strange alien? Truth is out there. I am your father's best friend, Plumber. Superman. Wonder Woman. Heroes. Villains. Captain Picard versus Captain Kirk. Do you think that there's room in sci-fi for God? The very first thing that God did was that he created something. So we have a creative God. This is Strangers and Aliens Podcast. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Strangers and Aliens. This is sort of an experimental episode, and it's one that doesn't feature the uh, the usual conversational uh, nature of discussing sci-fi and fantasy and how it fits into and pertains to our lives and our imaginations as, as Christians. Every once in a while, we like to do something a bit different, something a bit off the beaten path um, or a bit off the beaten path rabbit trails or however uh, you might uh, look at our conversations. But um, this is actually something that I would love to do as a a regular thing. I'd love to just do a podcast that's just this kind of thing, but uh, I don't really have the time to do that. So it's something that I can do here, though, as a a special episode. And so for this episode, we're reflecting on on the crucifixion and, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm recording this episode during the Holy Week and yeah, you know, we're calling it uh, Reflections on Easter, but uh, it contains elements from, you know, Monday, Thursday and, and Good Friday. But let's be honest. I mean, everything of the Holy Week is really just build up to what we celebrate on Easter. I, I do hope, though, that um, this episode is is not only an Easter episode and that if you would uh, I, come across it on some other time during the year, you'd still, you know, find something uh, to reflect on in this episode. And uh, and that's, that's really why we're, we're doing this this kind of episode. Uh, my goal, whenever I write any kind of story that presents a biblical account, whether it's f- for puppets or for comic books or for you know just telling stories to kids, my my purpose is to get the reader, or in the case of a podcast, the listener, to think about these old stories in a new way or a different way or from a you know a, a side angle that maybe hadn't been considered before or at the very least to consider something once more that may not be new but just to consider it again and so this episode features some older writings that I have done some newer writings that I've done um I've uh, adapted some things to the to be used in a podcast in audio form uh, but they retell elements of the Holy Week, and they're mixed in with some scripture that I've included as a result of some of my research for the graphic novel series, The Christ, where you know, I'm finally wrapping things up with the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, all that stuff. And it's been really fun working on that particular part of that graphic novel series during this time, uh, writing about the Holy Week as we're celebrating it and reflecting on it. 
Now, you'll also hear some new voices in this episode as my family has helped me compile some of the, the readings from my wife uh, all the way down to my, my four-year-old boy and my three daughters and my 13-year-old son in between. I, I hope you enjoy it, though, and I hope we get to do some more episodes like this and maybe even get Steve and Dr. Jace involved in it. Uh, but for now, Strangers and Aliens presents Reflections on Easter. Prologue. Hallel. Tucked away in the account of the Last Supper is an interesting element that too often gets overlooked. It says that before they left the upper room, Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn together. This is an intriguing statement because while it appears in more than one gospel, they're all just describing one moment, one event. And nowhere else in the gospels does anything mention Jesus singing. That's not to say he never did. Jesus did a lot of things that just weren't mentioned in the Gospels, but it's mentioned here for a reason. Why is this so important? I think it's important because it's a final reminder that the Last Supper was part of the Passover. Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover, a feast to remind them of God's faithfulness hundreds of years before, as Moses told everyone to put the blood of a lamb on the entrance to their homes, a marker that would indicate to the destroyer not to take the life of the firstborn inside. This final plague on the Pharaoh and the people of Egypt caused Pharaoh to finally let God's people go, and their freedom from that empire began. What does this have to do with a little verse that reads, When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives? Well, the hymn they would have sung would have been part of the Hallel, forgive my pronunciation, a series of psalms sung as a part of the Passover tradition. These psalms, Numbers 113 through 118, were not just sung or recited at Passover. They would also be part of other occasions. But at Passover time, Numbers 13 and 14 would be recited before eating, and the others would be recited after eating. If these are what Jesus and his disciples were singing, and it's important to remember that while Jesus participated in the Jewish observances and holy days and traditions, the gospel accounts do not explicitly say this is what he was singing here. This is just a logical thing for us to think he was doing. But if the halal was what gospel, the gospel account refers to, there are two, for me, touching implications. First, as a reminder of God bringing his people out of Egypt, this resounds with what Jesus was about to do and the point of his mission as Messiah, not just to the Jewish people, but to the world. It was no coincidence that Jesus' sacrifice occurred in conjunction with with the Passover. Second, reading the words of these psalms, the direct connection to what Christ was doing, and even the direct connections to what Christ might have been feeling, make these psalms even more poignant to me. Listen to the words of these psalms with that in mind. These words may have served as comfort to our Lord as he faced Gethsemane and Golgotha. It might have moved him as the psalmist reflected Christ's own emotional turmoil. This was one of those final moments that he had with those men that he counted as his best friends, those 11 men who were still up there in the upper room with him. A last moment to raise their voices together in harmony, in unison, 
before it all began. Not hours later. Interlude Psalm 113 Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 114 When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, see, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. Part 1. The Servant's Tale My name is Malchus. But my name does not matter. My job? Servant to the high priest. But my job does not matter. It didn't matter then. Cared very little for priests, especially the high priest, and their high words. But it was money, and then, as now, earning a living was hard enough. But it didn't matter then, and it doesn't matter now. Not after what they did, and not after what happened. It was the evening of the Passover. Caiaphas and the priests had done their priestly duty and celebrated as we should. But a man came. A man I had seen before. But where? Then hearing him talk, I remembered he was one of the men who were with that self-proclaimed Messiah. I had heard this so-called Messiah, heard his teaching, heard his claims, heard the people cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the man spoke to my master and some of the other priests, and then suddenly there was a flurry of activity. Money changed hands, torches were lit, swords were handed out, and I found myself in a crowd of men that left the city to go out to the countryside, to an olive grove. The truth was, I think I was glad to be part of the mob. It was whispered that this Messiah was to release us from the hold of the Romans. I had heard these whispers, but when I watched him ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, a donkey... I knew he could not be the great warrior we awaited. And the way he spoke to his betrayer, Is this how you must betray me? With a kiss? This man couldn't defend himself. How was he going to lead a rebellion against the Romans? Great warrior? No. He had done nothing to save us from the Romans. I would have betrayed him too. Promises don't fill your belly. Kings riding asses don't free you from oppression. Our people have been waiting centuries for that Messiah to come and lead us to freedom. I had no tolerance for this this farce of a man, this joke of Messiah. The order was given to arrest him, and I was one of the men to step forward. He was no warrior, 
But one of his followers seemed to think he was. He put himself between us and his master, and he lashed out with his sword. I barely saw the blade. I heard him shout, We'll strike with our swords! No pain at first. Just shock. Then wetness on the side of my head. I touched where my ear was and felt nothing but the warm, sticky wetness of blood. My stomach turned. I saw, lying in the dirt, a small coil of flesh splattered with crimson. Then I felt the pain. Pain not where my ear was, but where my ear should be. I fell to my knees. I was vaguely aware of the man we had come to arrest standing between me and the follower who had sliced off my ear. Cut it clean off. I felt a hand gently touch my shoulder. I saw him bend down in front of me. Picked up something from the dirt. Was he picking up my ear? My mind was already too confused to try and think of a reason why anyone would do that. This was just more confusion. What would it matter anyway? Why would he want that? It had been severed from my head. No physician could do anything with my ear. They could only stop the bleeding. That was the one clear thought that came to my mind. I need to stop the bleeding. His hand moved my own hand away from the bleeding wound on the side of my head. He put his other hand there, and I couldn't imagine what he was doing. Then I felt a warm sensation, and he took his hand away. His empty hand. Both of his hands were empty, but I had seen him pick up my ear. I could think clearly enough to realize the pain was gone. I reached up and touched the side of my head. Where there was blood, where there was a wound, now there was an ear. He had healed me. I heard him scold the men I was with. I heard him ask them why they came with swords and clubs in the middle of the night. I don't really remember much after that. They left with him. His followers ran away. I was left alone. They killed him soon after that, the next day after quick trials. I would have been there serving my master Caiaphas, but after what had happened, I just couldn't go back. And now, I have a new master now. This man, he died brutally, horribly, but he was more than a man. And I, I heard that he had come back to life and appeared to his followers. So I sought his followers out. I found him. I saw him. He taught and he explained and he promised to return. He may not have been the Messiah we were waiting for, but I have no doubt now that he is indeed the Messiah. So I followed, and I listened. As they say, to him who has ears, let him listen. Well, I'm listening now. Interlude Psalm 115 
Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Part 2. Considering Judas. He was the first of the twelve to die. He was the only one of the twelve to actually have his death recorded in the Gospels. His name, today, means betrayer, traitor, someone who cannot be trusted. But his name, when it was given to him as a child, meant something completely different. It was a good name, a common name. He was named after the tribe of his ancestors, the tribe of Judah, Judas. What was he thinking about the last night of his life? Was he remembering all the things Jesus had taught? Was he remembering the words of Jesus at their last supper together? Was he remembering the plans he had made with the religious leaders of the Jews? How could someone who had heard Jesus preach about love and faith and God's power choose to hurt Jesus? He had chosen to leave his old life behind just like the others. He had followed Jesus just like the others. He had helped Jesus when help was needed, just like the others. He had seen healings, just like the others. He had heard the teachings, just like the others. So how could he do what he did? Was it possible that Judas believed in the things that Jesus talked about? but did not agree with Jesus' actions? Perhaps, like so many Jewish people, perhaps Judas was hoping Jesus would use his mighty power to rescue their nation from the Romans. Perhaps Judas betrayed Jesus with good motives. If Jesus was arrested, he would have to use his power. That miraculous power that Judas had witnessed. Maybe Judas was just trying to give Jesus a, a reason to fight. Or perhaps he was so upset that Jesus was not doing what Judas believed Jesus was supposed to do, so he betrayed Jesus out of anger. Or perhaps Judas became a follower of Jesus, intending to betray him from the beginning. Maybe he just did it because he loved money more than he loved Jesus. He was in charge of the money bag, and some of the disciples already suspected that he was stealing from it, especially Matthew, the one who had once been a tax collector. We're told Satan entered Judas. 
So which one of those footholds did Satan use? It's possible that Satan just completely possessed him. But it's also implied that Judas knew what he was doing, understood it was wrong, and chose to do what he was doing. We'll never know. It would seem that only Judas and Jesus really knew. That last night, was Judas thinking about Jesus' words? Because Jesus knew. He knew what Judas had planned. He knew that Judas would leave that room and go to the religious leaders. He knew that Judas would be paid 30 pieces of silver. He knew that Judas would lead them to the garden where Jesus had prayed so often in the preceding days. He knew Judas could give them what they wanted, an opportunity to arrest Jesus away from the public's eyes. He knew that Judas would come to Jesus and give him a kiss, a greeting that friends give each other, a greeting that brothers give each other, a greeting of love and friendship, a kiss of betrayal, for that was the signal. And Jesus was arrested. As the events of that night occurred, Judas realized that no matter what his reason for doing it might have been, what he did was wrong. He had done wrong. He had done evil. He had hurt the one person in the world who had never hurt anyone. He had sinned against the one person in the world who had never sinned. What had he done? Like all the other disciples, Judas did not understand. He did not understand that God uses the evil things that people do to create good. Jesus had come to earth for this moment, this terrible, vile moment, this moment that changed the lives of the men who followed Jesus, this moment that changed the world, this moment that changed the relationship between God and all humanity. He did not understand that, but he did understand that he had done wrong and that sins must be paid for. Evil requires punishment. Wrong actions require consequences. Sin requires payment. The first thing he did was to return the payment he had received. He loved money more than he should. Why else would he take money from the bag? Why else would he take money as the price for his friend? But he saw that it had no value, certainly not the value of his friend's life. He knew payment was due, though. As his friend hung dying on a cross, was Judas thinking about the old way of doing things? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life? He knew payment was due. Or was he just so racked with guilt that he wanted to punish himself? Again, other than God, only Judas knows. But would Judas have done what he did in the end if he had understood? Would he still have taken that rope and put it around his neck if he knew? He had spent so much time with Jesus, but he and the others never understood Jesus' true mission. He did not understand that Jesus, as Messiah, was not just coming to save Israel. He did not understand that Jesus' death was to cover our sins. Judas understood his sin, his terrible, evil sin. He understood that payment was due. 
But he never knew that Jesus was dying for that very reason. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Innocent One, the Son of God, the Lamb slain for our sins, our terrible, evil sins, sins for which payment was due. Judas hung himself in a field that was paid for with those 30 pieces of silver. He fell, and he was split open. The field came to be known as the field of blood, while nearby another's blood was shed. Why did Judas do what he did? We can never know the whole story. We can only speculate. But it was part of a series of events that led to the single most important event in human history. We don't know why Judas did what he did, but we do know why Jesus did what he did. The wages of sin, death, payment was due, and that payment was being made. Was Judas's greatest folly not his betrayal, but instead that he thought he knew best how to pay for what he had done? Interlude, Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. In my alarm I said, Everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Psalm 117 all the nations praise the Lord. All the people on earth praise Him. Great is His love for us. The Lord is faithful forever. Praise the Lord. Part 3 Sunday Morning What if you were there? What if you were one of His followers visiting His tomb after those dreadful days? After the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the burial. Before those days, you had eaten with him, 
Remember tasting the wine he made from water at that wedding party at the very beginning? Remember sharing the bread and fish he multiplied to feed the multitudes and the baskets full of bread that were left over? One basket for each disciple. And then there was the bread and wine he gave you to close that last supper you had with him. You had watched him in awe as he performed miracles, bringing life to lifeless legs, bringing sight to blind eyes, giving hearing to deaf ears. You had listened to him in awe over the words he had used to shut down the hypocrisy of the religious elite and the stories he had used to lift up the understanding of the people following him. You fished with him, you laughed with him, you sang with him, and you worshipped with him, and most of all, you believed him. And now, he is dead. Placed in a tomb before nightfall came and the Sabbath began, now the Sabbath was over, and you walk through the countryside. It's early. The trees do not cast shadows, but instead, seem to rise up from shadow. You were tired. So, so tired. How could you rest after what had happened? Fear, sorrow, grief. Sleep could only conquer those when your body could take no more, and even then the sleep that came would be fitful and uneasy. Would you have been one of those who ran and hid in the shadows for the last few days, locking yourself up in the dark, crowded together with the others, in constant fear that the voices heard outside or the knocking on the door might be someone coming to arrest you too? Or would you have been one of those who witnessed and watched as the man you called friend had his hands nailed to a wooden crossbeam and had his body hoisted up above the heads of the crowds to be killed and visibly, publicly, shamed? Friend, Is that what you should call a man like him? Yes, friend, but so much more. Teacher, with wisdom beyond this world. Healer, with power beyond this world. Messiah, with purpose beyond this world. Messiah? Yeah, he was supposed to be the Christ. The Son of God. That was why you followed him in the first place. But now, your sandaled feet that once followed him on the dusty roads of the countryside step through the dew-covered grass to his tomb. What do you see in your mind's eye as you think of him lying lifeless in that tomb? The dark sky melts into dawn. The air whispers with a weak breeze. You walk past lush trees and cold stones. Would the cool morning air chill your tear-streaked face as tears roll from your eyes from grief and confusion and fear? Or would you steal yourself from any emotion, trying to command the storm of feelings in your heart to be still, just as he commanded the winds and the waves that tossed the boat to and fro when he was still with you? How do you make sense of all of this? The man who called you out of your ordinary, earthy life to a life full of extraordinary meaning had his own life taken so easily. Could your life with him really 
have meaning if the one who gave it meaning was gone? The man who called people back from death had been put to death himself. Did that power have any real purpose if the promise of the Messiah was merely a lie? And what did you expect to find when you arrived at the tomb? He was behind barriers meant to keep you from him. He who said, let the children come to me, and who said to you, come, follow me. He was behind a dead, lifeless stone rolled in front of his grave. He was guarded by soldiers with one order, keep people out. So why is it, even in death, you are drawn to him? Is it because you just want to see his warm, kind face one last time? Is it because you want to honor him? Do you want a chance to say goodbye? Do you want closure? Whatever the reason, you take slow steps over the rise of the hill. The sun pierces the veil of thin morning fog. The tree branches rustle. Some birds sing, bringing an unintentional joyful noise to this solemn occasion. And then, coming over the hill, you see it. The tomb. What do you feel as the place they laid your Lord comes into view? And then, what do you feel as you realize the guards meant to keep you away are not there? And the rock, meant to keep you out, has been moved. The tomb is before you, opened. Do you dare hope? The tears that want to pour out now, are they tears born of pain, fear, and sorrow? Or joy, hope, and confidence? Would you approach slowly and skeptically? Or would you run without caution? Would you peek in carefully? Or would you barge in hastily? However you would do it, now you stand in the entrance of the silent tomb. The only sound is your own quick breathing. Your heart beats with expectation. He is not there. It is an empty tomb. He is not there. His burial shroud lies neatly where his body should be. He is not there. What does it mean? He is not there. All that he said, all that he promised, all that he implied, now suddenly ring with new meaning. He is not there. You step out of the tomb, leaving that dead place behind you. The warm sun shines through the trees, making the green grass a bit more vivid. The air carries the scent of flowers, which smell even more rich. The breeze caresses your face, cooling the tracks of tears that no longer flow. The birds continue their songs, serenading your ears with instinctual worship. You step out of this place of death and ruin and sorrow, and you step forth into a new day filled with new life. Is he alive? Is he really alive? What now? Will you run to your friends and spread the good news you have discovered? Will you find a quiet place to let your tears of joy burst out? Will you seek him and find out where he is now so you can wrap your arms around him? You may not know where you are going, 
But once more, your feet carry you with purpose through the dewy grass. And once more, your feet carry you out to follow him. He is not there. He is alive. Interlude, Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His His love love endures endures forever. forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His His love love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His His love endures forever. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look and triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live, and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Epilogue The Road to Emmaus Oh, to be those two men, just walking, mourning the death of the Christ, and then to have a stranger come to them, a stranger who wants to talk to them about their loss, a stranger who seemed to know more about Christ than anyone else. And yet he was a stranger that these two men, followers of the Christ, didn't even recognize. He purposefully hid his identity from them. He walked with them and talked with them, walking them through the law and the prophets and explaining to them how those scriptures pointed to the Christ. Did he start in Genesis, where in just the first few paragraphs, after humanity lost its special place with God because of sin, 
A promise and a plan were set in motion to restore it. As a serpent was cursed, her son will crush your head and you will bite his heel. Did he talk about the sacrifices of Cain and Abel? Did he refer to Job's call for a righteous arbitrator? Did he mention all of the prophecies and promises found in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah when it said the Messiah would be called Son of God, and in the 8th Psalm where it said the Messiah would be praised by children, or in Zechariah when it said the Messiah's hands and feet and side would be pierced, or the instructions to the Jewish people found in Exodus where they're told not to break the bones of the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb of the Passover being a pre-Christ representation, which goes along with that small detail that Christ's own body had no broken bones and the Romans did not need to break his legs to cause his death to come quicker. But like the singing or recitation of the Hallel that may have happened in the upper room, we can only speculate and logically consider what might have been spoken of. But we cannot know. What we do know is even with his identity hidden from them, he revealed so much to them about his identity. Walking them through the Old Testament, he revealed to them how the Old Testament was about him, was about God's reconnection with man. It was about these past few days. All of human history led to this point. And all that would follow would focus back on it. And then, when were their eyes finally opened? When he broke bread with them. Luke writes, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. These are nearly the exact same words Luke used earlier when he described the climax of the Last Supper, when he described that first communion. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Their eyes were opened. He had explained to them how the Old Testament was about him, and then he once more broke bread in the physical representation of what he had done. Oh, to be those two men, to hear Christ himself explain the scriptures. Luke then tells us that Jesus disappeared from their view. What would that be like? Those two men, no doubt, would have shared a moment of confusion. And then we're told they ran to tell the others. Of course they did, for that's the natural response to what we call Easter and to what happened in that week. To run and tell others the good news. The Messiah was promised. The promise was fulfilled. The payment due for our sins has been paid and the relationship between God and man has been restored. Well, that wraps up this episode of Strangers and Aliens. Thanks for listening. Um, Maybe we'll do another episode or two like this in the future. I don't know. 
I hope you have a happy and blessed Easter, though, no matter what time of year you happen to be listening to this. And once more, thanks for listening. Goodbye and Godspeed. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast, hosted by Ben Avery, Steve MacDonald, and Dr. Jace O'Neill. Our music was composed and mixed by Tim Leffel. Please join in the conversation by visiting our website, strangersandaliens.com, where you will find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangers. Or you can leave us a voicemail on the Strangers and Aliens hotline. Just call 1-804-37-ALIEN and leave your message. And once again, thanks for listening.